Do you think World War II was justified? No. You don't think the Americans, we shouldn't have gotten involved? No. Thank you for joining us on Longest War. I know there's many truths about war, so I would like to ask each of you if you could just tell me a truth about war from your perspective. My perspective, I can't speak any truth about any war. That's just my feeling. So you weren't against war when you were 18, when you were fighting the Nazis. Can't believe in them. They don't solve no problems. Yeah, don't hold anything back. Don't hold anything back. Because if you're if you're holding it back and you're not being truthful, what's the point? Why are we even sitting here having a conversation? You know what I mean? I want to thank you all so much for being on. This is going to be a really great episode. Thanks, well, thanks hope, for having me over to your home. I thanks. hope this doesn't cause you any trouble whenever <laughs> other people hear it, but... No, I let people say whatever they want to say. If you fought for this country, you've got the right, more so than anyone else, Tell to state your opinions. Boy. Yeah. If everybody could please just go around and say your name and your branch of service. Thomas Cross, U.S. Army. Father Paul Abernathy, U.S. Army. Denise Abernathy, U.S. Army. And you are all related. We have th three generations of Army veterans here at the table today. Paul, you are the youngest, I assume? I am. And you were in Iraq? Correct. Your mother, what era did you serve? I served during the Cold War, um, 1977 to 1980. 77 to 80. And what years were you in, sir? 1944 to 1946. Other than Korea, everything, every... Uh, conflict is covered basically that's right sir were you redrafted into the army or did you join i really volunteered like on my 18th birthday in my senior high high school and then they called me in april to get an exam and then in may to go get the uh, orders like to get ready then on june 9th i took off for the army so three days after D-Day? Yeah. So you were aware that the, the fighting was pretty heavy in yes, Europe at the time when you went to basic training? Yeah. What was your job? Were you infantry? Infantry. You were an infantryman. Where did you go to basic training at? Uh, Camp Waddles, Texas. Uh, don't think that exists anymore. <laughs> yeah, that's right. uh, and how old were you? You were 18? 18. 18 at the time. I turned 18 in March of 44. Did you volunteer for the infantry or did they pick it for you? I wanted to be in the Marines, so on my 18th birthday, they says you can select your branch of service. But by doing that, you're not guaranteed it, I guess, because when they took me in April and uh, going through all the routine, I guess what the ha must have happened is the war in uh, Germany was getting brutal and they needed soldiers, so they put me in the Army. I I was drafted June 9th to 44, day before my graduation day was in high school. But if I'd have not went and volunteered like I did, the understanding then was you would get three months of home before you got drafted like and taken off. But you decided to just go ahead and do it, get it over with. Yeah. Because you knew it was coming. You, you knew that the draft was coming, so you might yeah. as well join on your own terms. Well, the draft was there, but like I say, the understanding was 
when you graduated from high school, you would be guaranteed three months with home. But because, like me, volunteering, like I did. Well, where were you living at the time? At home. At, in Pittsburgh? Carnegie. Carnegie. How long was your initial training? 18 weeks. 18 weeks. And then where to after training was finished? Well, I got a furlough, then I had to go for six more weeks of uh, further training for the infantry. And then what unit were you assigned to? Well, I wasn't assigned to anything till I got my orders to ship out. And then when I got over to England, landed in England, then got over to Lahar, France, I was on my way to join the 39th, 9th Infantry Division, 39th Battalion. Had you ever been on a boat before or a ship? No. What was that experience like sailing oh, from, from New York to England? Different. Yeah. <laughs> Did you get seasick? No. You were one of the few then. Yeah. Here almost everybody got seasick. Yeah. How long did that boat ride take? Four days over to uh, Liverpool, England. And so you knew you were going into France. Yes. Were you nervous? Were you scared? Were you... No. No, I was never nervous. It was all just so exciting, like a new experience. Yeah. Yeah, especially at 18 years old. 18-year-old. You ready to go shoot some Nazis, huh? Yeah. (laughs) So you get to England, you get assigned to your unit, then they send you into France. I had no idea where I was going, what unit and everything. It's just like the Battle of the Bulge was going on at the time, like December and January and February. We had stayed Liverpool. The channel was like chopping. We didn't go over there, so we lay over there for three or four days. Then landed in Lahore, France, and put us on a 48 train, you know, them boxcars they had. They called them 40 and 8. And uh, I joined them outside the Hurricane Forest. But the battle, the main battle was over. And what that was for is to get, like, shard up and dress uniforms because for them seven to ten days, Traveling from France, landing in France and joining my 39th Infantry Division, they had these big shires at the Hurricane Forest set up, two big tents. We had to go in one shire, take a bath, and come out of the other shire. They give you new clean uniforms, and from there we started advancing out of the Hurricane Forest into Germany. So this was... The winter of, or the beginning of 1945? Yeah, that was like the... Uh, right after the bulge, it was right when they were getting ready to push, end, push end, into end Germany. Of February. Where did you, where did you cross into Germany? A little town of Guinea, I think. What was it like when you first got into Germany? How were the people there? They were nice. Yeah, we, I joined like the 39th Infantry Division, and they fought in the East, Mideast, like... And then from there they proceeded and went up to uh, France and continued fighting. Like the sergeant and the corporal that was uh, the squad I was in, they had about 30-some months of combat without no relief or no furloughs or nothing like that. How did they treat you being one of the new guys? Oh, they kind of joked with me. 
we had gas masks, and they told me to throw the gas mask away, and we go, in, especially the corporal, when we go into town, we go down the cellar, and you put bottles of alcohol and that in that gas mask. <laughs> <laughs> so you ditch the mask and keep the bag so you can yeah. store booze in it. Oh, how the Army has changed. Yeah. <laughs> you, how long were you with that unit? Till the end of the war, I guess. Till I got wounded. So, okay, so when was the first time that you made, uh, you were, saw combat with the enemy? Well, the first time I made combat, we had two squads, one on this open field and one on the other side open field. I was fortunate to be on the good open field. The other field was mine, and there was a lot of deaths and disasters on that other side of the hip. Do you remember it pretty well? Yes, I do. That's something I asked Paul when I interviewed him, if he remembered the first time somebody shot at him. And I think it's something that you never forget. That was an awful one to ever forget. Your unit lost a number of guys that day. Yes. So what was the next steps for you after that? Well, next step, we marched to this town of Guinea, and uh, we stayed there a few days. We were going to advance in about four days. We started advance. I forget the name of that little town. I had a diary in a little book that I wrote every day that I was in. But uh, we just stayed there for a couple of days. We was like observant from this barn. We could see German troops going across from the one building down into a cellar. Finally, we took off, went across this town and stayed there a day or so. We don't know what's going on, you know. You know, the one thing that uh, I, I, I always remember my grandfather talking about is the Remagen Bridge, because he was one of the first GIs in Germany. And uh, I don't know if you want to tell that story, Pap, about the Remagen Bridge. Well, going through there, we were bivouacked in this, uh, this laid over in this little town. I can't think of it. We stayed on this side of the river, and the other side of the river was Germans. You could see them, you know, cross the river. And all we were told to stay put and just observe everything. Then after a couple of days, we got orders to get on a truck and get your ass moving. MPs are there. They're telling us, move those goddamn trucks, move them. We didn't know what the hell going on in the back of the trucks. Well, evidently our 9th Armored Division, they were goof-off and they got behind the Germans at the Remagen Bridge, the last bridge standing the Rhine River. They're telling us to move, get the hell over there. So we're finally get the hell over there. All that bombing going on, German soldiers along the water banks, captured, you know fighting going on. We finally got across the bridge and again, we bivouacked out the side of Remagen there. So finally we got orders to move out and go across, go uh, try to capture the uh, Autobahn that led to Berlin. And also they had an airport there. So we're going down in this here woods and everything bombing like hell going on and this and that. Next thing you know, I'm wounded. 
and I had my machine gun containers alongside my leg, alongside my side, and my helmet on, but my legs were extended out, and uh, I got wounded there, and the next thing you know, I'm on my way to Paris, France Hospital. So were you shot? Was it a, was it a grenade? What, what Mor- got you? Mortars. Mortar rounds got you. Shrapnel. I got shrapnel in my left lower leg and uh, up in my butts and my rear end. Mortars are scary business. Do you remember getting hit, or is it kind of... Uh, I can't recall. All I can remember is the lieutenant coming there, settle down, settle down, you know. We were all, well, some of us all were wounded. And uh, next thing you know, we're on our way to Paris, France Hospital. And how long did you spend in Paris? I stayed in there a week, then uh, got sent up to Antwerp. And how long were you there for? I was there for a couple weeks, and then we went on to uh, Liège, Belgium, down there. And we was there a few days. As we're going through Liège, we, it's, uh, all the horns are blowing, this and that, and we ask the people in there, in Belgium, what the hell's going on? They say the war's over. So then we went to Brussels. And from Brussels, we went to Bremerhaven, Germany. When you were in Belgium, uh, like recovering, how bad was your injuries? Like, could you walk? Were you bedridden? Oh, yeah. You could walk around? Yeah. So what did you do when you found out the war was over? Oh, I... I'm guessing you went and got drunk. <laughs> I was just... <laughs> couldn't believe it, you know, because we didn't know where the heck we were going and what we were doing. So when you first entered into Germany from France, like, the fighting was very intense, right? Yes. Because now, for the first time ever, there were foreigners coming into Germany, and they were going to fight like hell. Yeah. So it was brutal. So you guys had no, you, you had no, you didn't know if it would take you a week or a year to get to Berlin, right? No. We didn't know anything. Always we were told to uh, continue to try to capture the Autobahn that led to Berlin and uh, attack the airports if there was close by. How did you feel about the Germans? Like, did you, did you hate them? Was it a... They were wonderful people. Yeah? You had no hard feelings against, like, the Wehrmacht no. soldiers or anything? They had no hard feelings against us. I became a PX manager in Bremerhaven, and I had a janitor, young kid that was a German op, uh, in the German army, and we discussed this, and I used to give him the Stars and Stripes paper to read. And I says, hey, Barnard, read this damn article about Bremerhaven. It was so full of... Baloney. Baloney, like... <laughs> Trying to find the right rumors, word. <laughs> rumors that weren't true. I just couldn't do that. Couldn't buy it. But we discussed the wars a lot, and like he told me, he says, your generals didn't win the war. It was won by you crazy young men that didn't know where the hell they were going, and they were places where we weren't waiting for them. That's what happens when you give a bunch of 18-year-old men machine guns, right? They just kind of go crazy and do whatever they want to (laughs) do. All they want to do is go find some Germans, I guess. I remember there was a German general... They, they asked him about what it was like to fight the Americans. And he said, the toughest thing about fighting the Americans is that 
they have all these field manuals and they have all these operational procedures and they don't follow any of them. <laughs> that's, that's true. I, I'm telling you, that's the truth. Because when it hits the fan, you just generals, react. Maybe I shouldn't speak about them, but the generals... Oh, they're not around anymore. You can... There's another bus star. Oh, yeah. It's still that way today. Yeah. Most warmongering country in the world, and I don't care who knows it. That's very true. They don't worry about uh, servicemen and that. All they worry about is getting their another star. I'm against wars. So you weren't against war when you were 18, when you were fighting the Nazis? All I knew as an 18-year-old then to go into service. I think we're all on the same page that when you're 18, you're dumb. Yeah. You don't know anything about uh, anything. You know nothing about the world or this and that and what I've seen. So being in combat, is that what changed your mind about war? Yeah. When you saw what saw, bullets and mortars do to human beings? That I went through all 18 weeks and the other weeks and to prepare for her combat. and It's just disheartening to see life like that as a young 18-year-old. So how did you feel about your daughter joining the Army? I knew nothing about it. (laughs) (laughs) I'd have chained her. (laughs) So she joined and then she came home and told you after the fact? She didn't tell you she was joining? No, I didn't know what was going on. What happened with that? Well, my mother knew. (laughs) Actually, I went down to talk because I graduated from college from Slippery Rock University as a social worker, and I could not find a job at that time. So I thought, you know, I I wanted, always was very patriotic, and I I thought about the military. So I thought I'll explore possibilities in the military. So I actually went to talk to the Navy recruiters, but they were out to lunch. So the Army recruiters invited me over to talk to me. (laughs) That's how they do it. Yes, and so I, you know, I just explored possibilities with them, and... um, joined on the delayed entry program. I enlisted in September of 76 and actually went to basic training in April of 1977. Had you asked your dad about his experiences when you were growing up? Did you know what he had seen or been through? I knew some of it. I didn't know all of it, Um, but I knew I had um, uncles. I had an uncle that was in the Navy. I had um, my great uncles that were in the Army. I had my mom's cousin who went all through World War II, and I, I knew Stanley as, um, you know, he would often talk about, he would do little chores around the house, and he would talk about his experiences with war and just in the Army. So, um, you know, I just thought that, you know, I wanted to give a little bit of service to my country. And you knew that your father would disagree with it? I, you know, I really didn't know what he would think. Uh, well, subconsciously, you had to have known because you didn't tell him, right? Well, you know, I, I guess maybe. <laughs> when did you tell him? After you joined? Um, when he saw the recruiters coming up to pick me up to go take the test and, uh, you know, take the test and, and go, you know, get my physical and everything down at the federal building. What did you say when those recruiters showed up to get your daughter? I was dumbfounded. I, I didn't say nothing. You were upset? I was just so mad, I said, I better shut up. <laughs> but I was, I, I was. I figure um, my wife must have known about it. She knew, she told me then, it would have been the time that she'd have got chained. 
but I was 22 years old at the time. So, you know, I was able to make my own Technically, decisions. you could do what yes, you wanted I to do. Yes. <laughs> as long as you didn't tell your father first, then he would. But I have to tell you, my dad, when I was in basic training, wrote me wonderful letters about being in the military and, and the, the um, pomp and circumstances and, you know, all that went along with um, the military, um, you know, courtesy and um, code of conduct. So he used to write me wonderful letters while I was in the in basic training. They were very inspirational. I do have to say that. Were, were there parts of the Army that you liked? Meeting the people. It was very, very exciting. I wouldn't want to have changed any part of my life. So other than the combat, the Army was okay. How was the food back then? Well, we had like uh, chocolate bars and stuff like that, K rations, and put them in our bag, you know, and till we got to uh, these towns, like I'm talking about Antwerp, Liege, Brussels. Food wasn't terrible. We just had C rations and K rations. I've heard not great things about. The sea rats and the K rats. I've heard they were pretty gross. No, I give a lot of my stuff away. <laughs> yeah? Did you just eat the chocolate? Yeah. <laughs> I ate it. And so you, you guys pretty much just uh, sustained yourself off alcohol <laughs> most of the time, huh? When I was in the uh, beginning, we, what we'd done after we were done training every day, we'd go down to the beer garden where they had these tents and drink beer. That must have been nice. <laughs> yeah. So how long were you in for, when did you get out of the Army? What year? 1946, May 27. Where were you, and you were in Germany still when you got mustered out? I got mustered out at Fort Dix. Fort Dix. So they sent you back to Fort Dix, then they yeah. let you go. And what did you do next? I went home, and after a couple months went around in September, I thought I'd better go to school, learn a little so I went to a two-year accounting school to learn business accounting and that. Did you enjoy that? Yes. I hear a lot of guys that they come back from the war and then get a, get a job where they're at a desk a lot of the time, and it's just there's not enough excitement there. That's what you there. had to do. Yeah. So you just did what you had to do. Well, I figured I had to go get a better education, just 20-year-old. So how did you feel over the next few years and decades when, like, the Korean War started, then Vietnam started? Well, I just thought those were uncalled for wars. I'll give you a good illustration. I'm Syrian. Syria was a country by itself, regardless of Assad. Paul can talk to you about Assad more than I can. But he's still elected president, whether... Because his father was a previous president or this and that, he was elected by the people. He controlled the Christians, the Jews, the Protestants, all religions, and all groups that was there. And he was from the smallest Syrian group of people. The Alawites, I can't believe. The United States instigates wars. They don't prevent them. They're the instigators of all the wars, and they think they're the best country in the world. They destroy all the best countries in the world. I can't speak highly of our military 
after that, I just felt sorry for him. How did you feel when you found out your grandson was going to Iraq? I was upset. You got to go fight a war for our country. And why did they do away with the draft? Get all the kids in the military. Since we have a president like President Trump can be a commander chief and also the president to take care of our country. But as a commander in chief, he takes care of all the other rotten countries and he doesn't care about the people. And the sooner they learn that, the better off they're gonna be. Stop the wars. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. Paul, did he have any advice for you when you got ready to go over? You know, I, I remember uh, really looking to my grandfather, especially when I was getting ready to ship out. I was uh, waiting to hear what kind of words he would share with me. But the one thing that I really remember more than anything else was how quiet he was. And I remember that uh, the last moment that I spent, of course, all my family was there. And I remember my grandfather was there and really he said goodbye. It was in a, a very, very quiet way. And the way I understood that was that me going overseas to fight this war in Iraq was, I'd say, affected him very deeply. And I was very surprised by that. And, uh, you know, it was a very impactful experience for me, just saying goodbye to him in that way. What about when you came back? Was it nice to have somebody to... Because let's be real. All of us guys that went to Iraq and Afghanistan were pansies compared to the <laughs> World War II guys, right? That's they saw right. they saw yeah. real combat. Mm, right. We saw skirmishes. Right, compared. Uh, I mean, there, don't, there were some intense days, right? But there was no... <laughs> we weren't crossing over from France into Germany and having to fight the whole country. You know what yeah, I mean? Right. So was it nice to have somebody that just here that you could be open and honest with about your experience and talk to? We had such a, a great time, my grandfather and I, together whenever we came home. And uh, he was really comforting. But I just remember being so joyous. I remember all the joy we had. The, the, my, my favorite experience that I had with my grandfather when I came home was that the World War II memorial was dedicated that summer. And uh, my grandfather had gotten two tickets to go. And he asked me if I would go with him to the dedication of the World War II memorial. And of course, I was already discharged at the time. He also had taken me down and gotten me a life membership of the VFW, the same VFW that he was now the commander of. So my grandfather, who was always a hero of mine, commander of the VFW, which I watched him be growing up, very involved with the VFW. Finally, I'm in the VFW that he's the commander of and accompanying him to the dedication of the World War II Memorial. And it's I, a special moment. It was a very special moment. And it was just a really incredibly beautiful time. And you joined the anti-war movement shortly thereafter. I did, actually, very shortly thereafter. You were proud of him for joining the anti-war movement? I was proud of him very much. Like, he went over in University of Aleppo, Syria, to learn Arabic. And uh, when he was interested in the ministry, I guess, he went over with Orthodox priests to visit Syria. And that's when Assad was elected president. And tell them about it, Paul. Yeah, sure. So I, I got to be there the day that uh, Bashar al-Assad became the president of Syria. And so 
it really, my experience, gave a good context for understanding what's happening now in the Middle East. Who was the president of Syria at the time? Well, when, uh, when I got to Syria, and I had had the opportunity to do this actually before I went to Iraq. Um, Which is frightening. We'll get to that in a minute. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Hafez al-Assad was the father of Bashar. He had just died six days before I arrived in Syria. I had already gotten accepted into this program at the University of Aleppo. And so when I went there, Bashar had not yet been uh, sworn in as the president. And, and I, I got to go to the wake of President Hafez al-Assad, the father of Bashar. And the day that Bashar became the president of Syria, I was there in Syria for that. Tell me if I'm mistaken about this. My, my understanding is Bashar is not, he's a secular ruler, right? He's not an ideologue in any sort of way. Was his father the same way? His father was, in fact, the same way. Both of them are secular rulers, and um, he's from the Alawite uh, sect within Syria. They make up 11% of the country's population, and for that reason, they govern the country, uh, I would say, with a lot of discernment and balance, because they don't have the numbers of the population to be incredibly uh, oppressive. And they kept an open society. In the Assad regime, there was a place for Christians. There was a place for Druze. There was a place for Sunni Muslims. And, um, and of course, the Alawites, there's a place for them all. And of course, it's a very complicated region. It was a very hopeful time when Bashar became the president of Syria. In Syria, the people of Syria were incredibly hopeful. They thought this was going to be an opportunity for more uh, commerce to come into Syria. We saw things like uh, internet cafes and uh, ATM machines that were popping up. The European Union was investing in training Syrians how to uh, start businesses and maintain businesses. It was a, it was a very hopeful time in Syria. And at that time, so we, this is like 99, 98? That would be uh, in 2000. 2000? Yeah, and then I returned in 2005 after I had come home from the army. So in 2000, were, as far as like the Sunni, Shia, the Jews, the Christians, was everybody pretty much getting along without? In Syria, absolutely. Uh, there was, uh, there was in the year 2000, there was no threat of civil war. There was no concern of that. Uh, and and it was uh, it was a harmonious society. So what about 2005 when you went back? Like, did you see any of the stuff from Iraq starting to kind of spill over and make its way into Syria? That's what I remember. Is that in 2005 it became very clearly because you were in Iraq in 04? Oh uh, yeah, 03, 04 is okay. when I was in Iraq. So I was in uh, Syria in uh, 2005, and what I noticed at that particular time. Is, is that people had become very nervous as a result of the Iraq war. Um, one of the things that I was told when I was there is that, uh, you know, the regime in Syria obviously was against the U.S. invasion of Iraq, but they also were against Syrians fighting against the U.S. occupation because they feared uh, radicalization. They feared Islamic fundamentalism. They feared... And rightfully so. And rightfully so. They feared people going to Iraq and getting real combat experience and then coming home and using that in Syria against the government. There was, uh, from what I was told when I was there, there were 5,000 Syrians in Aleppo. Uh, there was 
some uh, Islamic clerics who were more extreme. There were 5,000 Syrians in Aleppo that wanted to go and fight the United States. The Syrian government had a real problem on their hands because they did not want to let them go. They, 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 they knew that this would be very problematic. On the other hand, they also knew that letting them stay would be incredibly problematic because they feared what then they might do at home against the regime and what they would say. And so the compromise that the Syrian regime struck was that, uh, was that if you go, you are no longer a citizen of Syria and you can never come back. What people feared at that time was that this small number uh, of Syrians now having gained combat experience and been radicalized by the Islamic fundamentalists that were now springing up in Iraq were, would return home. And I remember there were, um, in Damascus that summer, there were two Islamic fundamentalists who were killed by Syrian forces in a gun battle on the Jebel Qasun outside of Damascus. And when that happened, the Syrian people that I was with at the time took a serious note about it. In really blamed the war in Iraq for this and feared that this gunfight, uh, Jebel Qasim, was the beginning of something that could potentially be much more severe. And of course, as history played out, uh, things in Syria, in fact, did get much more severe. What was Assad's relationship with the U.S. like in 2001, 2005? It was difficult because the biggest uh, reason why it was difficult was because Syria, the Israelis occupy a piece of Syria. The Golan Heights. The Golan Heights, exactly, which is more than just a mountain range. You know, I had an opportunity to see the Golan from, uh, from what is now the, the Syrian border of uh, El Kanaitra. And it's a whole province of Syria. And for that reason, the Syrians have not signed peace with, with Israel, and the Syrian regime are viewed as being the number one enemies of Israel. Now, of course, the United States, on our side, we have an incredibly uh, unbalanced policy regarding Israeli-Arab-Israeli relations. And so any enemy of Israel is a lot of times an enemy of the United States. And that is one of the reasons why it became so complicated, I think, for him and his relationship with the United States. Do you think uh, under the last four presidents, have you seen any shifts in that policy? Like, you know, there's all these saber rattlers that say Obama was, a, you know, he was a closeted Muslim. He was, a, you know, he was an extremist himself. But the, Obama's policy towards like Palestine here didn't change radically from Bush's, right? That's right. In fact, one of the things that, that I find so fascinating is that if you ever look on uh, the whoever the candidates are who are running for president and you and you look at perhaps one of those those charts that say these are the issues and these are their stances on the issues and of course the the issues vary and the stances vary but on this particular issue they are always aligned on both sides of the aisle and so there might be small differences here and there but generally speaking there's not much difference in policy between the democrats and the republicans the one thing i would say is that the move of the embassy to jerusalem was very extreme and, and i would say that was uh, an absolute departure u.s policy 
But at the same time, the overall policy is incredibly one-sided, and that has created a great deal of complication in the Middle East. One thing I've always found strange, like, so I grew up in Alabama, right? One thing I've always found to be rather odd is that there are so many people, through not just in the South, but throughout the country, that at the same time are very pro-Israel, yet very anti-Semitic. Yes. <laughs> towards American Jews, right? right. Like they're, they're pro-Israel. The only way I can rationalize it in any sort of capacity is that it is good. It is in an American interest to have a nuclear-armed ally sitting in the middle of the Muslim world, right? Like, so, like, I get that from a policy perspective, but I don't understand, like, this hard line of, you know, Hezbollah shoots a few rockets into Israel, and then Israel responds with a thousand of their own rockets, and then this kind of, like, oh, well, they were attacked first, so it's okay kind of mentality, right? Like, it's like... we don't operate under that policy. We, you know, there's escalation of force, right? Like mm-hmm. uh, somebody shoots a pop shot at you, you can't, you can't launch 40 white phosphorus artillery rounds, right? Like it's got to be comparable. So it's always been weird to me. Do you think, so what do you make of the current situation in Syria? Having lived there for a while, is the rhetoric that we hear from our politicians on both sides about Assad, is it mostly propaganda is there much truth to it? Like, is he this oppressive, radical? Like, you know, do, do you believe he's dropping, you know, chemical weapons on his own people? What I can tell you from my own experience in war is that what happens on the battlefield is very far removed from any president. There are decisions that soldiers make. I would say, given our experience in Iraq, the president of the United States, when we were there, probably would not have condoned or ordered us to do some of the things that we did. This is war. What is very important to understand about the situation in Syria is is that uh, two things. Once we get into war, once war begins, people very often lose their humanity and begin to do unspeakable things. And this we've seen in the Syrian civil war uh, in recent years on all, on all sides. We don't say both sides because there are more than two f- factions that are fighting. We say on all sides. That's number one. Because in addition to the civil war that's going on, there's also a U.S.-Russia proxy war. Indeed. And just in the headlines the other day, I don't know why, but the Russians decided it would be a good idea to attack U.S. coalition forces, and we ended up killing like, like 200 Russians Indeed. or something, and now the Russian government's denying that they were Russian troops, that they were mercenaries. <laughs> Indeed. So we've got all this layered onto the ISIS and then all the, what were there, how many dozens of small anti-ISIS militant groups are there that are, some of them very extreme in their own right, some of them very passive and secular in their own right, but. That's exactly right. So it's, it's, I mean, it's a mess. Like, who do you back in this point? That's exactly right. And the other, and the other, and the second point, which is very important is that uh, unlike Tunisia or Libya or Egypt, Bashar al-Assad, after all of this, is still in power. This absolutely speaks volumes about how he is seen by the Syrian people. There are people who are fighting for him, many. There are people in Syria who are supporting him, many. This idea that he is some kind of brutal dictator that the Syrian people want to get rid of is foolishness because he has been able to endure ISIS. He has been able to endure the United States intervention. He has been able to endure multiple factions. Many of them are backed by foreign governments. 
themselves and Islamic fundamentalists. He's been able to endure all of this because, generally speaking, he enjoys the support of the people. And he's as anti-ISIS as we are, oh, correct? Oh, absolutely, and, and probably more so because... Uh, because it's real, it's in his backyard. Yeah, you know? it's not. Uh, it's, it's his not people being radicalized. It's exactly right. Um, and it's and the not, army's never left. The army's been completely loyal to him. Completely from day loyal one. to him. The Syrians are fighting for him, and that's why, unlike Tunisia or Libya or Egypt, he is still in power through all of this. How long has Syria been around? How long has Syria been a country? Well, it's an ancient land, and if, from a Syrian perspective, they would say, for example, it's not they would say, but the uh, oldest continuously inhabited city in the world is Damascus. Aleppo also makes that claim, which might be number two or number one, depending on who you talk to. Throughout the centuries, the notion of Syria has existed for thousands of years. Most recently, in the, in the context of the modern nation-state, Syria's story probably gets its new chapter in the First World War, when, of course, Lawrence of Arabia, who people know that name, may not necessarily know uh, what he did, was going to get the, uh, the Arabs to fight against the Ottoman Turks, who, of course, were allied with the Germans in World War I. The Syrians, along with the Arab peoples from across the Middle East, joined the uh, British and the French to fight against the Ottoman Turks. Syria at that particular time was occupied by the Ottoman Turks. It was a very brutal occupation. Many of the families at that particular time have uh, stories uh, that are heartbreaking that came from what it was like to live under the Ottoman occupation. They did fight with the allies in World War I and the price that they paid for that was the Sykes-Picot Agreement, which in 1916 was between the British and the French. And while the Arabs were fighting for them, behind closed doors, they had drew a map and carved up the Middle East between the British and the French. Of course, this is when Iraq becomes created. This is when uh, we see Lebanon uh, broken off as another country. This is whenever we see Palestine and Jordan separated, all from greater Syria. And when the war ends, the Arabs are surprised by what the results of their partnership with the Europeans was. And the Middle East has been paying a price in the context of modern warfare ever since. And strangely enough, they continued to fight on our side in World War II, even after the injustice of us just drawing random lines on a map and then renaming. Like you said, Iraq, Iraq wasn't a thing in 1905, right? right? Like Iraq did not exist. Even after we kind of screwed them over, I mean, where did the, the three great leaders, they went to Tehran, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like they went to Iran to meet like they, because they were on the ally side. Right. So they've really, they, they stuck with us for a long time due to even through all the Western injustice that happened. Do you think that after World War II, and the creation of like Israel as a state, was that the turning point? It was absolutely a new era. And uh, when, when Israel was created in 1948, the, one of the, there, were, there were two major consequences, I would say, probably more than two. But the one that for the sake of this podcast I would bring up is, the, the first is that um, it really creates a, a dichotomy in the Middle East between Israel 
in the Arab countries. Of course, Israel at that particular time uh, was run by European Jews. And so this, this notion almost of a European state within the Middle East is sort of what grips the Western imagination and perspective on it all. And even the Jews who were indigenous to the Middle East, you know, there were Arab Jews, the, the Sephardic Jews, they were treated like second-class citizens. The European Jews, when they came in, um, gave them no sense of real citizenship and did not give them the ability to run the government or have positions of power. So this became uh, like a European state in the middle uh, of the Middle East. The second thing that I would say about the uh, creation of Israel is, is that this is also now in the modern Middle East where we see a religious state that now exists in the Middle East. So when we see this, this notion of like an Islamic state, a lot of times they will say, well, there's a Jewish state now in the Middle East. We might as well have an Islamic state. Before that, this idea about an Arab identity, it was based on language. Who was an Arab? It wasn't based off of ethnicity. It wasn't based off of religion. It was based off of language. So what that meant was if you were a Jew, if you were a Christian, if you were a Muslim, you could still be an Arab. And this idea about trying to build the modern Middle East around the Arab identity was very powerful in the turn of the last century in the age of Lawrence of Arabia and the First World War. The state of Israel undermines all of that because now all of a sudden we have a state that's based off of a religious identity in the Middle East. And the reaction then to this is, we need to have then other religious states in the Middle East to counter the presence of Israel. It's interesting to hear that coming from a priest, right? Mm -hmm. So like, even though you're obviously very devout in your faith, you, it seems that you're strongly of the belief that government should be purely secular. I am, absolutely. And that we should not have any sort of religious states anywhere. Absolutely. And, you know, Jesus said, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, render unto God what is God's. And from, from uh, our Christian perspective, we understand that we are not trying to establish religious governments in this world. We, we ought to be citizens of the kingdom as sojourners in this world. And that means we must be very skeptical of any attempt to use God or religion to justify worldly acts and worldly actions. This idea of uh, secular governments that give the freedom of people to practice their religion becomes very important because created in the image and likeness of God means that we have free will and God does not force himself on any of us. There is, God loves us. There is no love without choice. It is, it must be ours to choose to love God. We cannot be forced to do that. We cannot use this as a political identity. We cannot have rights based off of any profession of faith. This contradicts the gospel. So both as a veteran of Iraq and as a priest, what do you think when you hear people make these loud proclamations that, you know, we are a Christian nation founded by Christians on Christian principles, even though you have evidence, you know, uh, what group was it that wrote to Jefferson? They were concerned with being pro persecuted by another. It was in Connecticut. And he wrote the famous letter. He's like, we will build a wall of separation between the church and the state. What's your take on all that? Anyone who says the United States is a Christian country, I would say we have to be very, very careful because uh, what we did to the Native Americans was not at all Christian. Whenever we enslaved millions of people of African descent in this nation, we were not Christian. 
When we declared war on Spain, even after Spain agreed to the demands we put before them, this is not Christian. Whenever people say that that this is a Christian nation, I think we have to take a long and hard look at what it means to be a Christian. And then to say, are we really acting in accordance with the gospel? Would God really be pleased with everything that we as a nation have done? And I think that question is one that absolutely would challenge any notion of a, of a Christian nation. And this idea of, of persecution, using our Christian faith to persecute someone, using our Christian faith to justify the execution of someone, using our Christian faith to justify the enslavement of someone, this is about taking our own sinful desires and beliefs, our own prideful ambitions, and cloaking them with the gospel like being wolves in sheep, sheep's clothing. And we have to resist this. And as a priest, of course, I must speak out against this. And we as a nation, uh, I think we have to be more critical of our own history. So as a, as a soldier who hey, fought... Can I make a comment please. first about Iraq? Yes, sir. How we were deceived that they had nuclear weapons when Colin Powell lied before the United Nations. It had Iraq, which is proven... Do you think Our people are so ignorant? Do you think that was Colin Powell telling a, a flat-out lie, or do you believe that the military was telling him false information? Probably. I mean, like I say, that was a flat lie to the United Nations. Use the United Nations as a propeller to go to war. I might point to you. This book should tell the truth about this. You know about this. I am not familiar with it. Assault on the USS Liberty by Israel that killed 37 Navy men, bombed the ship till they were jumping off with boats. Our schools don't teach the right kind of teaching that I went with. They never will. You didn't get the right teaching that I had. Oh, I'm from Alabama. I'm aware that I did not get the right teaching. I guarantee you. (laughs) Yeah, I got very backwards teaching. Boy, they were serious. You learned. Do you think World War II was justified? No. You don't? No. You don't think the Americans, we shouldn't have gotten involved? No. Do you think there's ever been a war that's been justified? I can't think of one. What should we have done during World War II? Let Britain handle it? Well, there had to be a reason for Germany to be everybody against them. I don't want the public to say why. It's well, I think it's—we've said it before. We interviewed a, a woman whose family was killed in the Holocaust. She was Austrian, and she had got sent over to America when she was young. And she said it flat out. The Nazis came to power because of Woodrow Wilson and his demands right. on— Germany after World War I and the fact that we saddled them with what would equate today to trillions of dollars of debt. The Europeans owed us money. We demanded payment for that. They demanded payment for the Germans. And then we did one of the most backhanded things in the history of the world where we loaned the Germans a ton of money for them to pay back to the uh, Europeans, for the Europeans to pay back to us. So now not only are the Germans in debt to the Europeans, but they're in debt to us as well. Crippled their economy. And then what happens when hurt people hurt people, right? Like when everyone is hurting, 
you, you allow. Never, you never learned the truth about any war. The Holocaust. You think the Holocaust is the greatest thing to protect one group of people in the world. They use that today. That's a bunch of bullshit. And I'm not ashamed to say that. That is a bunch of bullshit. I, if you read the paper and everything, you'll see who's running it. They'll always say this Holocaust survivor and things like that, blaming the Polish people. Polish people was oppressed by the German army. They made them build them concentration camps. For what reasons? Why blame it on the group of people that was invaded? They write the history of this world today. World War II, Holocaust, and this and that. And I don't care who knows it. What about the Pacific War? Because the Japanese attacked us. That was a legitimate, legitimate war, yes. What about us dropping the atomic bomb on Japan? Do you think that was justified to save the no. number of lives? No, not to use a bomb like that. It's supposed to be a good moral country. That's bullshit. Just like I showed you this book, Assault on the USS Liberty. A lot of people don't even know that. Who assaulted them? You, I, I'm assuming, are very staunchly in the isolationist camp. You think we should just mind our own business yes. and not involve ourselves yes. with the rest of the world? Yes, we have no business helping another one. Let them help themselves. So there was a, an Afghan commander named the Great Massoud. He was the commander of the Northern Alliance who was fighting against the Taliban before September 11th. And we asked him if he needed any help, and he said, Americans can't solve Afghan problems. Only Afghans can solve Afghan problems. Right. Do you think it's us getting that. Do you think us getting involved in all these things, we've just made things worse? That's right. Just like I made things worse in Iraq. How they lied. Paul, tell them about your military experience, how you got demoted because of things like that. Tell them. Yeah, well, I wasn't demoted, no. But there was a lot of pressure. It was, I, I would say, racially. Because related. you could speak Arab and how... Did, uh, they sent you to do the interpreting, mm -hmm. and they just say, "Oh no, we got to get the hell up there." Yeah, yeah. I was, I was, I was not demoted. I, I did get. I would say there was pressure, and I think one of the uh, more sobering moments of my service was they had asked me to. We were, we were at a, we were putting in a, a bridge in Baghdad, actually. And uh, we, we had been there before, actually, in the invasion. We'd been in the, in the neighborhood before, and there was a lot of things that were starting to happen. And I remember there was a, uh, these officers, the, this, this woman came, and, and she was really nervous that she was saying all these things in Arabic. And they asked me to come over and find out what she wanted. Now, at that particular time, my, my uh, Arabic wasn't great. It's still not. But what I was able to understand that she was saying was that these that these men had come into her house and they threw her out of her house and that they had with them RPGs and uh, and weapons and that they were going to use them to ambush American forces. And she came to us because we were the closest U.S. soldiers that she saw. And uh, and I remember going and telling the officers this and um and they said, well, you know, we, we can't, uh, the engineer, the infantry officer who was there, he said, uh, well, we can't help her because that's not our mission. Our mission is to guard this particular area and have a perimeter here. And, of course, uh, I was a combat engineer, so the engineer officer, you know, I told him, and, 
And, uh, and he said that, uh, well, you know, I can't help her because our mission is to, to deal with this bridge and we're just doing this and getting out of here. Right then there was this, there was this group of M1 Abrams that came down the road. We feel the road shaking. These tanks came. These Iraqis, they, uh, they were so excited to see these tanks because in their mind, they thought they had told this to me. I talked to my officers and then these tanks came down the road. This infantry officer, he says, tell, them, tell, that, uh, tell that lieutenant in that tank where well, you told me maybe they'll do something. And this uh, officer was hanging out at the top of this tank. And then I stopped him and I told him what this woman had told me. And he said, well, that's not our mission. Our mission is to get these tanks from, from this point to the next. And I still remember the face of that woman and her children. I didn't see any man with her whenever they watched us uh, get back in our vehicles and drive away. And from my experience to be in these situations like that, and I think what, what was happening in that scenario was it was easy for them to have me go talk to them because then they didn't have to deal with the humanity of that. And there was situation after situation like that where they could just turn their back on these people where we can understand that we might not really be there to help these people, that there were other interests and other objectives that uh, ultimately everybody just wanted to get back home alive, that that was really the thing, uh, which I understood. But uh, my experience in the Middle East did afford me experiences like that when I was in Iraq. That's a scary thing to hear, too, because let's forget about the woman and her kids for a minute. If she's telling you these guys are trying to kill Americans and each of these U.S. Army officers are refusing to get involved in this and do anything about it, someone probably died from that. Yeah, very, very potentially. Someone, particularly in the early days with unarmored Humvees, somebody mm -hmm. probably very well could have died and they still did nothing That's right. because it wasn't their mission. That's right. In other words, that proved that Americans didn't care about the Iraqi people. All they cared about what the mission is to get to Baghdad, probably. I don't know. But they have a mission. They don't have any common sense officers. <laughs> and I don't care who knows it. Paul, didn't you tell me once you lost your thing and then when this other lieutenant come on me restored your sergeant? The irony of it was I was a squad leader at the time and... I would eventually, I was a, a sergeant E5, I would eventually get promoted to staff sergeant when I was there. But before that happened, I was a squad leader. And uh, when we were in Baghdad, because they watched me talking to the Iraqis in Arabic, because they asked me to, <laughs> they started to question my loyalty. Uh, it was a brief period of about, um, I would say maybe a week or so, where they actually removed me as squad leader. And it was based not on anything else than um, watching me use Arabic with the Iraqis. And eventually, after that brief period, they, I guess, thought about how foolish it was. You're like, bro, I'm from Pittsburgh, man. <laughs> I like, <laughs> I know I'm from Pittsburgh, yeah. From Pittsburgh, I was in the ministry. Like, that's why I learned Arabic. Right, exactly. Because I'm a Christian. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and you guys... Gave me a mission, I followed through, and now you want to question my loyalty to my country. Right. That's got to be frustrating it, for you, man. It was so frustrating. I was, uh, I was very hurt by that, especially because the history of our family. And, and of course, in, uh, my mother served, my grandfather served, and my great-grandfather served, World War I veteran. And, and I don't know that any of the 
the the guys that I was with had four generations that served successively like that in the fact that I had already proved myself on the road to Baghdad. I mean, I never uh, wavered from the duty that they put before me. And, and still, despite all of that, to question my loyalty, it was very hurtful. And, uh, and of course, I became squad leader back. I, I became squad leader again and, and would eventually get, get promoted. You think there was a racial element involved? Absolutely. Because like you're, you're, you're biracial. You think yeah. if you looked like me that they would have questioned you? I don't know. I, I think that it was absolutely racially motivated. And, you know, and, and I think that um, at that particular time, Certainly, in my company, there was a there were there were two standards for uh, for white soldiers and soldiers of color, w- without question. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Well, I, I mean, I, you don't have to. Yeah. I don't. I don't want to dig, you know, old wounds. But yeah, no, not at all. I mean, I, I just I think you know. Um, was there any overt racism, or was it mostly that polite kind of? Well, I, I remember, you know, I remember some of the things they would say to, to the black soldiers, some, some guys, of course, not everybody, but I remember, you know, a sergeant saying one time, uh, we had a, we had a, a black soldier, he's from uh, South Carolina, and his uh, soldier's from a white sergeant from West Virginia, you know, he sat him down and, and, he, sa- and he said, you know, shooting the breeze, just like soldiers do, you know, he said to him, you know, if we were back home, now this is several months in, or tour overseas, he said, back home in my town. Uh, if we were sitting there back home, we, we, we absolutely wouldn't be talking like we are now. It wouldn't, uh, it's not a place where you'd be welcome. And he didn't say that apologetically. He said that. As a matter of fact. As a matter of fact. And also to say the, the way we understood that was, if we're all cozy here. Doesn't mean anything when we get home. That's right. That was certainly the message. And there were just similar experiences like that along the way. What was what was your experience? How how were African American troops treated when you were in? I suffered all through my life being in there. Sad scratcher, this and that that call me, these other kids, but it was ignored. But we all became good friends, you know. But a lot of them probably learned it from their parents and things like that. And when they actually see us performing with them friendly and all that, you know. Come on, Tom, come on, you know. But I say, as an Arab in this country, growing up, you suffer, just like the blacks. I say that honestly. Yeah, maybe even more so in this day and age. Mm -hmm. Probably. Which is weird. So I was in Detroit a few months ago. Well, I guess it was about seven, eight months ago now. And we were in um, Hamtramck. It's circled by Detroit, but it's its own little community. And it is... Uh, the police chief, the mayor, the entire uh, city council, the superintendent of the school district are all Arab Muslims. Mm. And it is the friendliest freaking town <laughs> you will ever go to. Like me and my buddy Bruner, who I served with, who's black, we walked around, you know, we just hung out. And every person we passed looked us in the eye, said hello. Like the shopkeepers, they were all thankful for our business, right? Like there was no... I'd be hard-pressed to find another neighborhood in the country that's a better representation of, like, what America should be like, right? Because none of these people, you know, there were, there were Pakistanis, there were Iraqis, there were, you know, Iranians. None of that mattered, right? Like, they were all Americans. This was their community. They put away all the Sunni, the Shia, Christian, Jew, Muslim, all that. Everything was put aside. And there's so much racial and religious hatred right now particularly in these last year or so, 
that's just rearing its ugly head. Um, as a veteran, I'm ashamed to say this, but like I'm ashamed of my country, you know? And that sucks to say that. Like I, I fought for a country that I'm ashamed of now. Amen to you. Any of the officers in your chain of command like ever like truly recognize you as an asset? Uh, you know, I think that there were. Like when you got reporters out there writing stories about this kid in your unit, like you'd think at some point they'd be like, oh, shit, maybe <laughs> this guy's special. Yeah. Maybe we should utilize this to our advantage. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny because I, I think that there are situations, uh, I think you become a situational asset, as you know. When you're in the thick of things or when tensions are high, maybe opinions don't matter so much as the ability to deploy an asset. And I think there were, uh, obviously, there were, there were officers and, um, and other NCOs and, and uh, guys in my company. Man, I, lo- I love them, and they certainly showed love for me. Um, I think what was, what, what's difficult is whenever you have, you have a, it only takes a few to sow certain seeds or, or make, uh, I would say, difficult um, judgments or, or share perspectives that are very hurtful. I think the, the enlisted men, non-commissioned people, worshipped him, right? <laughs> well, I won't say that, Pat. I went, well, I would when you told me stories how these kids would... They'd be bombing, going around our tents, and it all started hiding <laughs> and things like that. And him and his friend would still be playing their guitars. <laughs> well, there's only two proven methods to get people to follow you, right? And that's through love or through fear. Right. And I, I don't, you don't strike me as the fear-based <laughs> kind of guy. Yeah, not my style. So was that, that your style was to cultivate this loving, like familial environment amongst your guys? Yeah, it was. I learned very quickly some of the things as a as a NCO that I had to ask, I technically order, but really ask these men to do were very, very difficult things. And I remember uh, one soldier in particular, we were talking about a very dangerous mission we were going on, and he kept talking about his family and his kids back home. And how badly he just wanted to get back to them, and you know, I, I learned very, I learned very quickly as a as a combat leader that when you ask these men to do this, they have to do it not because you have stripes on your collar, but because it was you that asked them. Right. And that's and that really is is only fostered through love. Fear that becomes about stripes. Yeah. You know, and that. That's that's like because everyone's scared of the sergeant major, right? Because he's a sergeant major, right? Right. And he owns the grass, and you better not be walking on it, right? Like, right. That's, <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> that's yeah. I mean, that's and that's. I don't know. I've always wondered that. Like, were sergeant majors? Did they used to be E fives and E sixes <laughs> that their guys really loved? <laughs> yeah. And then they became sergeant majors, and everyone hated it's, them. It's a question for the ages, maybe. Because <laughs> like first sergeant, you're on the brink, right? Like you you can love a first sergeant so much, and then uh, you, you hate the rest of them. Right. But once you once you uh, get that cluster with that diamond, man, it's all downhill from there. Right. One final question for both of you, uh, and I know there's many truths about war, so I would like to ask each of you if you could just tell me a truth about war. my perspective, I can't speak any truth about any war. 
you subscribe to the belief that the first casualty of war is truth? I think there's a lot of untruths of all wars. You don't hear the real thing. That's my belief. And that's why, like I say, I just can't believe in them. They don't solve no problems. I, I, I can't think of any war that solved a problem. Civil war didn't solve a problem of people in this own country. So how the hell can they support wars? Fair point, Paul. Very difficult question. Uh, the one thing that I would say one truth about war is that in the horror of it all, the one remarkable thing is you will find the very worst of humanity next to the very best of humanity all in the same place. And that's what makes it so horrific and so unimaginable all at the same time. I appreciate that. I think it's a good note to end on. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Longest War. If you like what you heard, please be sure to rate us and subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, or your favorite podcasting app.